0: Let's go to the Lord once again, and we will move into the time of spending in God's Word this morning. Father in heaven, we are truly grateful to you for this opportunity to examine your Word. Thank you. We pray that you would bless us this morning with wisdom from on high, not worldly wisdom, not our own reasoning but that which is in accord with your word, truth. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for the leadership of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Jude. I'm going to give you a few select verses that we will read from this book, and then we'll spend some time this morning in review. So, open with me here to the book of Jude and move down in the text to verse 3. Jude 3. Jude 3. Beloved, While I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Move from here to verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting, save others snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh." Now, having read those texts, I want to back up for some considerable time here. We have not been studying through the book of Jude. But we have looked at a particular subject in this chapter. And we started this way back in at the end of November. And we have spent some time out of this chapter since that time, or out of this study since that time because of Christmas and the new year, and we're returning to the subject now. And the subject basically had to do with those first two verses we read from verses 3 and 4, and that subject simply being contending for the faith. And you saw that command that Jude gave there in verse 3. And what I'd like to do this morning and before we move into uh, the text that we eventually came to, where we had left off last week, which was verse 22, I want to spend some time in review so that you'll know where we are here. And even before we do that, I just want to remind you of something very important. Whenever Paul was writing to Timothy, in First Timothy, And there he wrote to Timothy specifically and told Timothy that the church was the pillar and support of the truth. And whenever he made that statement, he was giving one of the reasons for the existence of the church there. This is stated elsewhere in scripture, but one of the reasons the church exists is that it is a pillar and support of the truth. That's one of the reasons and one of the primary reasons why the church is, the local church is here, and it is here to be a pillar and support of the truth. And an aspect of that being a pillar and support of the truth is that the truth is to be taught, it is to be preached. Paul told Timothy again in his letter to Timothy, this time the second letter, 2 Timothy in chapter 4, he told Timothy, preach the word. One of the aspects of preaching the word is not merely getting up and speaking forth different words. It's declaring the word of God, and in particular, as you're declaring it, you're teaching it, you're exemplifying it, not only in your life, Outside of this church, in the way that you live, but in the pulpit, and it is to be communicated in truth, and an element or an element of that is that it requires teaching. as a matter of fact, that is one of the qualifications of an elder in a church or a pastor is he must be able to teach now, one of the reasons why I'm going through all of this is because In an environment that we live in today, especially in evangelicalism, majority of what we see and hear, and this is even sadly what I hear and see and experience in conservative circles within churches, is that what basically is going forth is what I will call sermonettes. They're just very small, condensed messages that just... Herald. In some cases, they're heralding truth, and it's not that that is wrong in itself, but the people that are hearing it, because it is so condensed, don't understand where it came from in the Scripture. In other words, they see the sign, the stop sign, but they don't know how they got there. They don't know how the preacher got there. There's danger in that. Because it's not about the preacher. It's about God's Word, and it's about God's sheep being fed. And whenever you go home, and whenever you're living your day-to-day lives, you need to be able to come to the Word of God, because He gave it to you, and you need to be able to get to that place too. You need to be able to see how the preacher arrived there through the study of God's Word. Now, obviously, we only have a limited amount of time, so there's always some condensing that has to go on. That's a given. And I will communicate to you that, especially in these days, what's happened, because much of preaching has uh, been influenced by what I'll call the radio, Not that that's a negative within itself, but on the radio, what you have is a very limited amount of time. And all of the message has to be condensed so that it is clear on the radio, but at the same time, all the frivolous things are cleared away. As a matter of fact, whenever we were doing the radio, this was a few years ago, one of the things I had to do, we had a limited amount of time and everything had to be condensed to... 12 minutes. 12 minutes. Now, I usually preach anywhere from 45 to 50 minutes. And to get that into 12 minutes was, it took hours of cutting and editing. And John's familiar with that as he edits the messages here for the radio and the, or actually for YouTube. So we understand that there's some condensing that has to go on, but sadly, for the sake of trying to get the Word out beyond the walls of the church, I think oftentimes the people of God that are present and that are working through the text aren't always familiar with how you get there. And they need to be able to, because again, as I've said, Whenever you go home and you're studying the Word of God, that's God's Word. You need to read it and understand it as if He is speaking to you, because His Word is to you. There have been saints who have given their lives in history so that you and I can hold this Bible in our hands. It cost them their life that cost them their life to translate it into this language that you and I speak. And they did that at the expense of their lives, at the expense sometimes of their families and the lives of their family members. God used that because he obviously, clearly in that, wanted the people to have his word. So it's a great blessing. Also, we are called in Scripture to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen who do not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You need to see that exemplified in the pulpit. So as we come to these verses this morning, that's why I'm going to spend some time reviewing what has thus been said, and we're going to condense this review down obviously. Um, We don't have, for the sake of time, the time to go back and start all over because we have missed a few Sundays and preach all the way through it. Although after we finish this review, you may feel like that's what we've done. But we'll condense it as much as possible. So I want you to look here at this third verse, and the thing that we saw immediately as we began looking at contending for the truth was that there were three reasons why Jude exhorted those that he was writing to to contend for the truth. And you'll remember that this contending for the truth is involving warfare. The first reason that we as believers, those who are Christians, must contend for the truth is because God has clearly commanded us here to do so. Notice the text again. I felt the necessity in the middle of verse 3 to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Earnestly for the faith. And whenever he's talking about faith here, he is talking about the doctrinal content, which is the basis of our faith the biblical Word of God, the truth. And he tells us to contend for it. So that's the first reason for contending. God has called all of his people as soldiers. Soldiers for the truth. Second reason, notice this, is in verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed... Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. So the first reason we contend is because we're commanded to. The second reason we contend for the faith, for the truth, is that there are those who have crept in to the visible church who are false teachers. He actually spends some time on this, and he tells us where they are. Look at verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. They are in the local churches. They're in the church. They're in the visible church, the church that you see, the church that you experience, the experiential aspect of the church. They are there. Whenever you turn on the radio and you hear the different messages on the radio and the different radio stations that carry uh, uh, evangelical messages, they are there. So That's the second reason we contend, because they're there, because they have crept in. Another reason and a characteristic of them is that they are headed someplace. He tells us the fact that they're there, they're in the visible church, but also he spends a lot of time, as a matter of fact, most of the time in this book on where these individuals are eventually headed, It starts in verse 4, notice here, he says that they are marked out for this condemnation. And actually, verses 4 through 16 of this book address the fact that all of these false teachers, all of those who have crept in unnoticed, that have crept in camouflaged, that they are ultimately headed for judgment. And you go through and look at those. He talks about past judgment. He talks about future judgment of these individuals. He also tells us what they are. They are false teachers. We could see it many places here. He says in verse 4, they are ungodly persons. Skip in the text down to verse 12. These are the men who are Hidden reefs in your love feasts, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. They are clouds, essentially, he says, without water. They look on the outside promising, but whenever they get there, they are empty. They're carried along by winds, they're autumn trees, they're without fruit, they're doubly dead, they're uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, he says, casting up their own shame like foam. They're wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Then he goes on and he continues to build on their ungodly character. He says, it is also, it was also about these in verse 14, that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, behold, The Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. He goes on and he says that these individuals are grumblers. So you see that he spends a lot of time telling us not only have they crept in, Not only are they reserved for judgment, but he tells us that their character is they are ungodly. He also tells us in many of these same verses that we read what they teach and what they do. They teach doctrine that in essence turns the grace of Christ into licentiousness. Or actually, he is saying that there in verse 4, they turn the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ into a license for immorality. That's the idea of licentiousness. So they take the grace that God gives to his people and they twist it so that it becomes an excuse or a license to live an ungodly life. They live after their own pleasures. They care, as verse 12 says, for themselves. That's their concern. They appeal to the carnal nature of people in their teaching. The pursuit of one's self as opposed to the pursuit of Christ. They teach doctrines that appeal to the satisfaction, in essence, of the flesh. That's why they have so many followings. As a matter of fact, whenever second, or Peter wrote about these individuals in 2 Peter chapter 2, he said, many will follow their ungodly ways. Why many? Well, they appeal to the flesh, and everyone has the flesh. And the flesh is always in a state of lust and the pursuit of self-satisfaction. So when someone comes along and they appeal to that, they have an immediate crowd, an immediate audience, immediate following. It's appealing. It's like if we opened up a Mexican food place, perhaps on the corner and said, "Free Mexican food, What are you going to get? You're going to get customers. They're going to come. I would be there. I would want a sample of it. However, whenever it comes to doctrine and truth, that shouldn't be the case with God's people. We shouldn't be in pursuit of the satisfaction of the flesh, but in the nourishment of the spirit and the truth that comes from God. The third reason why we need to contend and it's built into the character of these people, is because they are teaching false doctrine, the conveyance of false doctrine. So why contend? Because we're commanded to. Because creeping into the visible church, the second reason, are false teachers. And thirdly, they are conveying false doctrine. And the church is to be the pillar and the support of the truth. So we need to confront that. We need to contend for it. Then he moves, whenever we move over to chapter or to verse 20, to an element that we'll refer to, a section we'll refer to as preparing for contending. Preparing for the contending. And whenever you move to that 20th verse, you see a transition taking place in this epistle. And it moves to what we need to do as Christians for ourselves with regard to contending. In other words, if you're going to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints, you must be prepared to do that. And so he addresses that here in verse 20. Notice what he says. But you, so here's a contrast. This is what they are doing now. But you. And he says, Beloved, those who are believers he's speaking to here, beloved, you remember, are those loved by God. And the very first thing he says is, we need to be about building up ourselves in our most holy faith. And that word building, you remember, translates a Greek word that means construct. So you as a believer and I as a believer, we have the responsibility as we contend for the faith to be about constructing ourselves on our most holy faith. We aren't hypocrites. God hadn't called his people to be hypocrites. They're not to be believing and practicing false teaching and then go out and reprimand others for doing that. Certainly, God hasn't called His people to that. But they are to look first at themselves and ensure that they are constructing themselves on their most holy faith. Notice, he says
1: next, praying
0: in the Holy Spirit. Constructing yourselves and then conversing in the Holy Spirit. And you remember whenever we were looking at that particular text, conversing in the Holy Spirit or praying in the Holy Spirit, whenever we come to these texts such as this that refer to the Holy Spirit, and in particular he's talking about prayer here, he's talking about that our prayers must be in line with God's Word. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit of truth. We know that from John 14, John 15, and John 16. In all three of those chapters, God referred to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. And we know whenever we look at Peter's epistles that it is the Holy Spirit who moved upon those who were writing the Old Testament in particular there in that context to pin that. So we know that the Holy Spirit, truth, comes from him. The Bible comes from him. We have it as his work in uh, the pages of this book. And so whenever Jude or Paul or anyone says you are to be praying in the Holy Spirit, he's talking about that our prayers need to be in accord with God's word. We don't want to be found praying against what God has clearly said or spoken of in His Word. Our prayers must be in accord with God's truth. Some have twisted these verses to mean that individuals are to speak in tongues whenever they pray and those kinds of things. That is not what he is referring to. He's referring to... Prayers being lined up with God's truth. He goes on and he says that we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. Take a look back at the text. Keep, in verse 21, yourselves in the love of God. The word keep translates a Greek word here that means to preserve to preserve. One of the great blessings of contending for the faith, and that's a warfare. It's warfare. And it causes sometimes difficulties in our lives. But one of the blessings that we as God's people, those who are Christians have, is that they are preserved knowing God's love for them. That even though the battle may be intense at times, God loves them. So he writes and he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, while we were in that text, we looked at some characteristics of the love of God. Oftentimes today, whenever people talk about love, they talk about an emotional kind of love. God's love is quite different from that. We saw that God's love is a sovereign love. It's a sovereign love. He loves Whom he will. He loves whom he will. God's love is not drawn out of God by those he loves. God sets his love on whom he wills to set it. He communicates that clearly in various texts, Exodus 33, 19, and Romans 9, 15 in particular. And Romans 9 actually refers back in that context to Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. And he says in Romans, for instance, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. And what he was in essence referring to is the fact that I have poured out my saving love on Jacob, but I withheld it from Esau. Now, God was kind to Esau. If you go back and you look at the characteristic of the text, long before Jacob became the nation that he became, and long before he became uh, um, blessed by God, His brother Esau had been blessed by God. But Esau was not someone who cared for God. But God still had poured out his mercy and loving kindness in the general sense on Esau, but not his saving love. So God's love is a sovereign love. It's a sovereign love. He didn't love his people because they deserved his love. Nope. He loved them because of himself, his choice. His love is a sacrificial love. It's a sovereign love, it's a sacrificial love. For God, the text says in John 316, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's a sacrificial love. God's love is a salvific love. His love saves people. It saves people. It pulls them out of the mess and the misery of their sin against him and sets them in a right relationship with himself. It's a salvific love. Again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but has everlasting life. It's a sanctifying love. His love conforms His people to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. You can see that in Romans chapter 8. As well in Romans 8, His love is a securing love. It's a securing love. We know that because God has loved His people, they will be with Him for eternity. If God be for us, Paul wrote in Romans 8, who can be against us? And the answer is, no one. The idea there is, since God is for his people, who can bring a judgment against them? And the answer to the question is, no one can, because God has secured them in his love. Now, they can say things, and the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that the devil is the accuser of the brethren, but none of the accusations stand. Why? Because God has secured his people in and by his love. So he says that we are to construct ourselves in our most holy faith. We are to converse in the Holy Spirit. We are to keep ourselves in the love of God. Look back to the text again with me now. And he says, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Whenever we come to that little phrase, waiting anxiously, the idea behind it is that we are to confidently expect the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Confidently expect it. the text goes on to eternal life. And that's another aspect of the mercy of Christ. Whenever He comes for His people, we will experience His presence. We'll experience, according to verse 24, the presentation of the saints. Look at verse 24. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. Christians, God, through Christ, enables you to stand before the presence of God with great joy. Listen. Everybody's going to stand before God. Every human being, there is no doubt about it. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess, Paul says to the church at Philippi. Everyone. They will stand before Him with great joy, or they will stand before Him with great dread. But they will all stand before Him. And what a blessing of mercy it is to stand before Him, as Jude says here, because of Christ with great joy. Then there is at the coming of Christ where we experience the fullness of His mercy, Not only the presence of Christ, the presentation of the saints, but there is also vindication there. There is vindication there. And that vindication is on twofold aspect. First of all, God's vindicating His truth. He proclaimed throughout history that judgment was coming, that His mercy was there, and there will be the great display of it. What a praise that is, and what a great blessing that is. But at the same time, not only will there be a vindication of God and His truth, but there will be a vindication of the saints. The book of Revelation in chapter 3, verse 9. There Jesus said to John that He will make those unbelievers come and bow down before the people that belong to God and make them know that He has loved them. What a praise that is. And then obviously at the coming of our Lord and the experience of His mercy, there is for the people of God the inheritance. An inheritance that Peter writes about in 1 Peter chapter 1, and he tells us there that that inheritance is incorruptible It's undefiled, and it will not fade away. Praise the Lord. So, here we have for us the review. We've been commanded to contend for the faith. We have to make preparations for it. Now I'm going to ask you to look at the text as we pick up where we left off. We come to verse 22. Now, we're not going to be able to finish this out this morning, but what I want you to see is whenever you come to verse 22, you're coming to another transition in the text. It says, And so in conjunction with building yourselves up on your most holy faith, and have mercy on some. Now, as you and I are building ourselves up, We're also contending. And as we contend, we're going to be encountering individuals that have succumbed to false doctrine or being influenced by it. And so we need to have, as he says, mercy on some. So now he's moving into, not only have you been prepared, but now you're going to be dealing with individuals. You're going to be confronting them. So here's the transition. He turns to addressing how it is that believers are to respond to others. In particular, he's addressing here how it is that we are to respond to those who to varying degrees continue to be under the influence of false teachers. So he's going to give instruction with regard to that. We live today as Christians in kind of a live and let live world. You do your thing, I'll do my thing, and everything's okay. Everybody can enjoy their things that they're doing. But you know... That's a difficult philosophy for a Christian who believes the word of God to take, and they shouldn't take it, because the Christian knows the truth of God's word, and the Christian knows that at the end of the road of this life, everyone must stand before God, everyone. All of us in these recent weeks, and actually throughout uh, this winter, have seen the devastating storms that have come to different places in this country. As a matter of fact, just yesterday I was watching a news clip, and there in one of the highways in California, in the middle of the highway, opened a sinkhole. A sinkhole large enough that several cars could drive off into it. Many of you saw the video from the Yellowstone here this past winter, and how the rivers that uh, overflowed their banks went in beneath the road, and eroded out the base of the road, and just large sections of it collapsed into the river. Now, if you were able to see that, and you were able to look up the highway a bit, to someone who is driving down that highway, and they're doing 55, 65, or 80 miles an hour, or whatever the speed limit is, and you knew that there was, in just a little while, a sinkhole down there, you would feel that it would be incumbent upon you, to some extent, to warn them you may not be able to run out in front of them, but you might try to yell for them or, or make yourself known something to get the word to them. Hey, down there, there is the end of the road. And if you keep going at that speed and on that course, you will die.
1: You will die. How much more so, spiritually
0: speaking? We all know we're going to die. Now, many try to live today like they won't, but it's evident, all do. If God gives us enough time, we grow from infancy to adulthood and from adulthood into old age, and then finally our body begins to give itself up and we succumb to death. It is true, all die. And every human being can see that explicitly. You really don't need to warn people about that. We should, because it's important. It reminds people, hey, if you don't take care of yourself, you could find yourself being key to your death. But believers, we know something else beyond that. And that is that when a person dies, they eventually stand before God. As Hebrews says, it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And that's a truth that God is clearly communicated in his word. And we have the responsibility to communicate. We know firsthand the fear of God and we have a genuine love for others who although they may enjoy their lives and the path they are on, they are bound either for upset in regard to their walk with God through the neglect of their faith or destruction in the eternal fires of hell because they have not believed the truth. Either way, it is the mandate of God's Word that genuine believers not remain silent but expose the error. Ephesians 5 8 through 12 addresses that specifically. That is, that we had the responsibility of reproving. And it's the converted heart that loves not in word, but in deed and truth, according to 1 John 3, verse 18. And it is the Christian that is compelled in the light of truth to confront the error, to confront
1: the sin. The Bible tells us in the book of
0: Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, that the words of the friend are faithful, but the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. The text says this, faithful are the wounds of the friend, but the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. We have the responsibility of warning about what's ahead, because if you know the truth, you can see what's ahead. You can see the outcome of false doctrine. You can see the corruption of it in an individual's life if they're a Christian and they're believing something that's not true, and you, because you have built yourselves up in your most holy faith, you're standing on the Word, you're conversing with God in the Holy Spirit as you speak His truth with Him. You're preserving yourselves in the love of God. You recognize the error and you communicate it because you really care. You really have a concern. More than anyone else, you know the result. False doctrine always, always has the objective, as we have seen before in our study through the book of Galatians, of alienating individuals from God. From alienating them from the Father, from the Son, and from the Holy Spirit. False doctrine always seeks
1: to destroy your knowledge of the truth.
0: And whenever that occurs, you become alienated from the things of God. And then, as Galatians points out, even from the people of God, and even from the doctrines associated with the grace of God, So it's natural, and therefore to be expected, that Jude makes here this transition to addressing the believer's response to others. Very important. Let me take a few moments now as we move into this next verse, and we'll do this in closing. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, where we leave off this morning. But first acknowledge that in this, in this book, there is given to us a contrast of people. There are three basic groups of people that are found in this book that are addressed here. First, there are false teachers and mockers. Look, you see that in verse 4. He speaks there of them. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And he addresses all of them through verse 16. You see it again in verse 18. Speaking of the words of the apostles from verse 17, he says that they, the apostles, were saying to you in the last time, there will be mockers following their after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions. They're worldly-minded, and they're devoid of the Spirit. So there's false teachers and mockers. The majority of this epistle addresses these individuals, who they are, as we have seen, and what they do. Next, there are certainly believers that are addressed here in this book. Look at verse 1. Jude a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. They're mentioned again in verse 17. But you, beloved, referring to them all three times as beloved, and then you can see it again as we saw earlier in verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, These are those to whom Jude specifically is writing. And they are those who are loved by God, and they are kept for Jesus Christ. And there's a third group here. And the third group has to do with those who are yet under the influence of the false teachers or the mockers. And you can see that in verse 22 through 23. They're referred to here as the some and the others. Some and others. This is a mixed group of people. It is likely made up of both believers having to some degree been influenced by the false teachings of these individuals. And at the same time, there are uh, unbelievers in this group that God will yet save. They are under the influence of the false teachers. So we have those three basic groups in this epistle. And so Jude now tells us how they are to be addressed. Within this third group, we acknowledge the three groups. Those who doubt, those who doubt, verse 22. In verse 23, those in the fire. And in verse 23, those who have sinned. Three groups within the last. Those who doubt, notice verse 22, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Next. Verse 23, save others, snatching them out of the fire. These are others who are in the fire. And third, those who have sinned. Look at verse 23, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Those who doubt, those who doubt. These are those who, upon encountering false doctrine, they're not sufficiently grounded in the Word of God, and consequently they immediately begin to doubt what God has said in His Word. They're not grounded, so they have a tendency to float with anything that comes along. The Greek word that's translated here, doubting, in this verse, is actually used in verse 9 of this book as well. And you can back up there in verse 9 and notice the text. It says, but Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil, that word disputed is the same Greek word translated here, doubt. And in this context of doubting, it means to distinguish between two, but unable to make a decision about them. They're doubting one or the other. They see that there's two, but they're torn between the two, between the truth and the lie. They're not grounded in the truth, so they have a difficulty. They're scratching their head when they hear these other things, and they say, well, it sounds right. Sounds like it's biblical. Most false teachers use the Bible they don't come in and tell you, hey, this is Anton LaVey's book of the devil. I'm going to mislead you f- with it. No, they come in and they say, hey, I use the Bible too. They say things like, we believe in the Bible. We believe in Jesus. Now, those who are grounded in the word know that the characteristic of, of Satan and his, advers- his embassy, his um. Advocates or his ambassadors that they use truth, they are angels that trans they are fallen angels that transform themselves into messengers of light. the Bible tells us, and Christ himself warned us in matthew twenty four that there would be false christs, but individuals who are not grounded in the Word of God have a difficulty whenever it comes to discerning what is true and untrue, especially when someone's holding a Bible in front of them. They think everything they hear from someone like that has got to be true. And I can tell you, television and the the airwaves today are filled with those kinds of individuals. Those in the fire. Look again at the text. Save others, in verse 23, snatching them out of the fire. Although fire in this verse is often associated with the fire of hell or the lake of fire, as it clearly is spoken of in this same book, look at verse 7, just as some Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they are in the same way as, though, as these indulged, in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Fire is certainly used in this book with reference to the the great white throne judgment, the second death of Revelation chapter 20, the lake of fire. But it doesn't always, whenever it's used in Scripture, and even in this same book, need to be, Put in that category, it can be, as is clear, but not always. It can also refer to the fire of peril, fire of peril, fiery trials, the Bible speaks of. And Jude may even be alluding to some Old Testament texts here found in the book of Amos and Zechariah. Amos chapter 4, verse 11, and Zechariah chapter 3 verse 2, where God in those verses refers to Israel as a brand snatched from the fire, pulled out of their trials. Regarding believers, it would refer only to the trials encountered because obviously believers will not experience the eternal fire but it could refer as well to unbelievers here. And if so, then when they are saved, they are saved from the judgment of the lake of fire. That final judgment. And then, finally, with regard to those who have sinned, notice verse 23, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. These individuals, they've experienced the fruition of false doctrine. They've engaged in the deeds associated and promoted by, associated with and promoted by the false teachers. And their garments have become soiled. Again, it's possible that Jude is referring to a text in Zechariah in the Old Testament, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, where the high priest, because of the influence of carnality on Israel, had polluted his garments and they had become soiled.
1: A lot going on in the text. We've come to the end of our time
0: this morning. And really, we're only barely even halfway through these verses, 22, or excuse me, yes, 22 and 23. But this morning, as we close, we have those who are Christians incumbent upon us, To earnestly contend for the faith. To be building ourselves up in our most holy faith. And to be prepared to communicate God's truth to others. No one else is going to do that. It's not going to happen from the world. It's not going to happen clearly from false teachers or false religions. The truth is... Been
1: committed to God's people to communicate. Now, listen, Christ came as the truth, and you know what the world did to him they put him on the
0: cross, they crucified him. So, whenever, as Christians, we're called to contend, it's not going to be a comfortable
1: plight. It's confrontational, but that's okay,
0: because in the end, we know that God's truth always triumphs, and so do His people. I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning.
1: The biblical exhortation from God to the world, from Christ
0: himself to the world, is to repent and believe the gospel. Mark chapter 1, that was the message Jesus preached. He preached, repent from one's sins and believe the good news about himself. What is that good news? That good news is the fact that All of sin to come short of the glory of God. At the same time, God saves sinners, but he only saves them his way. They don't get to offer up their own salvation. It's not a self-rescue effort in the world. It's rescue through Jesus Christ. And the greatest thing that God saves his people from is. His own judgment. And he's responsible for doing that. They don't save themselves from it. And he has done that through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, once for all, in their place. He poured out his wrath on Jesus, who died in the place of his people. And then he sent his Holy Spirit in the world to call them to repentance. And he grants them the spirit of life. And whenever God does that, they see for the first time that their sins are against him. And they see only Christ as the Savior. And the exhortation then is to them, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you that you've given us this ministry of mercy in earthen vessels. So the excellency and the glory will not be of us. It's not of the church. It's not of the Christian. It's of you. Thank you. Bless us with wisdom to continue to communicate your truth. And live to the praise of your goodness and glory. And thank you for your great, great, great mercy.
1: In Jesus' name, amen.